Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tonight on The Readout. On the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump's intention was to remain President of the United States despite the lawful outcome of the 2020 election. Donald Trump intended to remain President, and he was determined to do whatever it would take to stop the transfer of power. That's it. That's the case. As the January 6th committee presented last night, Everything Trump did was part of his effort to use every means necessary to stay in power. A member of the committee will join me in a moment. Also tonight, Liz Cheney described Kevin McCarthy as shaken on January 6th, scared and calling members of the Trump family for help. Now he's calling the investigation of the attack illegitimate. What happened to the Republican leader who privately said he would hold people accountable for the insurrection? Plus, devastating new reporting about the police response to the Uvalde shooting. According to The New York Times, officers knew there were kids in need of medical help, but waited to enter the classroom anyway. We begin with the legal case against Trump and why it matters. As President Biden declared today, the violent siege against democracy is far from over. It's important the American people understand what truly happened and to understand that the same forces that led January 6th remain at work today. Trump lost the election. We know that. You know that. The committee has now proved that Trump and his advisors knew it too. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he said was saying. At some point in the conversation, Matt Oskowski, who is the lead data person, was brought on. And I remember he delivered to the president pretty blunt terms uh, that he was going to lose. That big lie wasn't just big. It was pernicious, catastrophic, a call to arms. And when his very own vice president walked away from that lie, Trump unleashed his mob, a group that committee chair Benny Thompson called domestic enemies of the Constitution. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a a sad day for our country. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. This was the result. The actual attack on the Capitol, an attack that was planned, that wasn't impromptu violence that popped off because folks got excited. This wasn't a case of innocent bystanders who got swept up in some spontaneous attempt to overthrow the government. The committee made that clear. 
that this was a coordinated, multi-step effort, saying members of the violent extremist group, the Proud Boys, marched toward the Capitol before Trump's speech had even begun. They showed video evidence of a secret militia meeting between Proud Boys and Oath Keepers leaders in a D.C. parking lot the night before January 6th. According to the Department of Justice, the Oath Keepers leader said to his followers that we are not going to get through this without a civil war. It's that very word, war, that came up again during testimony by Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards when describing the chaos and carnage of the front line. And that day, it was just hours of hand-to-hand combat, hours of dealing with things that were way beyond any, any a law enforcement officer has ever trained for. Um, and I just, remembered, I just remember that moment of stepping behind the line and just seeing the absolute war zone that the West Front had become. Joining me now is Congressman Pete Aguilar of California. He's a member of the Select Committee to investigate January 6th. And Congressman Aguilar, thank you much for being thank you so much for being here. I thought last night's presentation was compelling. I thought it was very thorough. And I thought Caroline Edwards, um, you know, police officer Caroline Edwards made, I think, the key point is that this was not a riot. It was war being made on the United States. Do you agree with that that characterization? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that where we started yesterday's hearing, uh, thank you for having me, Joy, uh, was a continuation of the police officers, the D.C. Metro police officers and Capitol Police officers officers that we heard from last year. Uh, A continuation of that, just so people understand the gravity of the violence uh, that happened that day. And I thought she did an amazing job uh, and was such a powerful uh, presenter. Uh, But I think that she accurately conveyed uh, that this was very difficult for all of them. And this, this felt like war. Um, but, and the image of her, you know, getting back up and then slipping on blood. I mean, those are just images that, that stick with you. And, and, you know, police officers who've been through this, they they will tell you that same thing. You know, there's the gaslighting of saying it didn't happen at all, but also sort of characterizing it as a tourist visit and that kind of thing. The the other piece of it here is that the violence that we saw that day was not spontaneous. I think that's very clear. Maybe the people who got caught up in it and thought Trump sent them there and said whatever they said and are getting prosecuted for it felt in their minds like, you know, we're just doing this at this last moment. But there were people who were planning to have what they clearly must have known could become a violent confrontation. Let's just go back. Let's go back. Liz Cheney, um, she talks about the fact that members of Donald Trump's, people who care about Donald Trump, who are friends with Donald Trump, people like Sean Hannity, were saying that this is the new thing. You got to have no more crazy people, no more stolen election talk. Kaylee McEnany saying, love that. That's the playbook. Um, And this is the most important part of it, I think. They knew that President Donald Trump was too dangerous to be left alone, at least until he left on January 20th. And this brings me to what I still think is the kind of most important piece of evidence against Donald Trump as the perpetrator here of the war. Donald Trump tweeted on January that January 6th would be wild. That was one of the tweets that I think was him doing a rare, tell what I'm going to do, write it down, come to January 6th, it will be wild. But before that, he had met with a group inside of the White House, including Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani. They met alone. They discussed, quote, a number of dramatic steps during this December 18 meeting, including having the military seize voting machines, potentially rerun elections, et cetera. 
Do you suspect that that meeting in the White House included a plan that included having the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers? Is that what this committee is developing, that they made a plan to send those paramilitary groups to the Capitol? Well, I'm not going to get ahead of the and preview the evidence uh, until some of those hearings. Um, but what I can tell you is that it's been very clear uh, that within the Trump presidency and those four dark years, uh, there was a lot of connection between him uh, and the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys uh, from his stand back and stand by. We know that that became a calling card uh, for them. We know that they use that as a recruiting tool as well. Um, but we also know, as you highlighted, that the president would get spun up at some events. So December 18th, he gets spun up by his attorneys and then he goes out and he tweets, you know, at 1 a.m. And it wasn't the only, you know, 1 a.m. tweet uh, that he had over that over that time period. Uh, so people would get in his ear and they would give him these conspiracy theories and they would, you know, tell him that everybody's behind him. And then he would go out and he would use social media and his platform uh, to get out uh, and to get his message. And in this case, summon a mob to Washington, D.C. before directing them to the Capitol. We know that when Donald Trump in a during a debate that Chris Wallace moderated, when he wouldn't condemn the Proud Boys, he said, stand up, stand back and stand by. And that the response from the Proud, Proud Boys on Gab or whatever social media they were using, not Twitter, they were kicked off by then was standing by, sir. So, you know, I'll, I'll ask it another way. Are we going to see connections directly between Donald Trump or some of his aides, people like Roger Stone, who are using these some of these groups for security, et cetera? Are we going to see a direct connection at some point in these hearings between Donald Trump, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers? I think it's clear. I don't want to get ahead of the evidence again. And, and I know Chairman Thompson has talked a little bit about this as well. Uh, I think it's clear the connection to people around uh, the former president uh, to groups like this, uh, just like you said, uh, the Proud Boys and using recruiting tools like Stand Back and Stand By. Uh, is, is code names and, and uh, to help uh, boost membership. Uh, it's pretty clear that the president liked a lot of the comments, liked a lot of the things that those individuals and those groups stood for. Uh, and he was all too willing uh, to use them to his advantage, to convey his message uh, and to deliver a threat, uh, which is exactly what he did on, on January 6th and leading up to January 6th, uh, threatening uh, individuals and, and ensuring uh, that everybody knew exactly where he stood. Uh, January 6th committee member, Congressman Pete Aguilar. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you being here on a Friday. Thank you. Um, and with me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst. And I'm going to go in the same direction with you, my friend, because here's the thing. Nothing about that day can be characterized as spontaneous, period. Donald Trump was not somehow still fooled into the key on the election. We now know for sure he had been told many times, including by his sycophant attorney general, that he lost. So we know that. We know that he said after meeting with people like Michael Flynn, who was saying seize the voting machines, he met with people like Roger Stone. He's meeting with the Sydney pals of the world. They meet alone to the point where even people like Sean Hannity are saying, don't let this guy be alone with these people anymore. He meets alone with them and then within hours tweets, Come to the Capitol. It's going to be wild. Then he tweets that over and over and over again. January 6th was not a thing most people knew about. Most Americans don't know this, don't know all that civics that January 6th is significant. He made it significant. He draws the crowd there and then he says, you see down the street, those people are taking your rights. Let's march over there. I'll walk with you. But the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were already there. Does that not suggest to you that Donald Trump must have known 
that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers would be his enforcers in staying in power. Joy, this was a plot. This was a plan. This was a scheme. This was not a riot or a crowd that got overenthusiastic and and sort of spun out of control. And I can't wait to see more information in the coming public hearings about the meeting in the Oval Office between Trump, Flynn, Giuliani and Powell. I'm quite sure the J6 committee has some information about that they're going to present because last night we sort of got the impression that there were no adults in the room at the time, right? No lovers of democracy in there to, to try to keep that, that conspiracy, you know, contained. And we heard that, you know, some people did rush in when they heard these, these folks were meeting in the Oval Office. Correct. But about an hour after that meeting, we got the tweet. The plan had been hatched and Donald Trump was implementing it. Come to D.C. on January 6th will be wild. Enjoy the other word that you've already picked up on and others have picked up on that we heard yesterday was war. Why does that become important? Well, where is that word prominently featured in the big, ugly blue book of federal laws, the United States Code, the crime of treason? And every time I heard war, my mind went back to treason, which is a very short and simple statute. Whoever, owing allegiance to the United States, like the president, levies war against the United States, is guilty of treason. What we now know is Donald Trump not only set the date for the Capitol attack, as we've just discussed, but he also refused to call off his angry mob once he deployed them for more than three hours. Mm -hmm. But I think what we learned a little bit more about last night was not only did he refuse to call off the attack, he refused to authorize the deployment of any forces to go to the Capitol to fend off the attack, to protect the people in the U.S. Capitol that he set his angry mob on. And it took an order from Mike Pence, who frankly probably didn't have the authority at that moment. But General Milley said, he was insistent. We have to get forces to the Capitol to, and Mike Pence is no hero. He was protecting his own skin because he was in the Capitol. Yeah. But you know what? This begins to feel not just like treason, but like treason squared. Yeah. It's overthrowing. It's attempting to overthrow the election. Other lovers of democracy, people who, again, politically, I disagree with these people vehemently, but you're going to have more people who stood up to Donald Trump testify. This is what's coming up. Former Fox News political editor Chris Steerwalt, Steierwalt, um, is going to testify on Monday. Trump knew that he had lost the election, spread false information. Anyway, that's what his topic is. You're going to have Jeffrey Rosen, who was in the DOJ, refusing to be replaced by a sycophant who would then do what they wanted Ukraine to do announce a fake investigation so that it would make it look real that there was some sort of uh, fraud in the election. Pence advisor Greg Jacob, who, to your point, Pence was targeted by Donald Trump. He said maybe he should be hanged. And, of course, Brad Raffensperger um, and Gabriel Sterling, who Trump tried to pressure to flip the, the, the Georgia election. What might we get out of that testimony? You know, I think we're going to get more voices bringing to light Donald Trump's crime and evidence that bears on Donald Trump's intent. And importantly, I think a lot of them are going to be Republican voices. I was surprised that the first witness we saw last night via a video clip of his testimony was Bill Barr. I would not have bet a buck. He was going to be the first witness we would have heard from during the, you know, the first public hearings from the J6 committee. And it was a smart tactical move. Why? Because one, it's a Republican 
condemning of a Republican former president. And two, to the extent anybody still entertains the notion that it might be a challenge to prove Donald Trump's corrupt intent, which it won't be. Bill Barr laid that to rest from junk, yep. saying, I told the president his claim of, of election fraud was bull S, period. The corrupt intent question was answered at the very beginning of the hearings. And then we heard more Republican voices like Mark Short and Jason Miller. And we heard Ivanka saying, "I essentially, I credit Bill Barr's take yeah. on there being no election fraud, not my father's. The more Republican voices we hear from during these hearings, I think the more it will blunt the criticism that this is yeah. just a partisan witch hunt. To say nothing of the fact that the leader of the prosecution is named Liz Cheney, like Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney. Uh, Glenn Kirshner, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Coming up next on The Readout, profiles in cowardice. Kevin McCarthy begged Trump to put a stop to the violence, but he now has a much different take on the events of January 6th. And perhaps the bombshell of last night's hearing, Liz Cheney's revelation that Scott Perry and multiple other Republican congressmen sought pardons from Trump for their roles in the plot to overturn the election. More on that when The Readout continues. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We need an area for the housing members. They're all walking over now through the tunnels. That was newly released video of dozens of Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's staff members fleeing their office as the Trump mob laid siege to the Capitol. Those frantic staffers are now forced to relive that experience in light of McCarthy's newly exposed comments just days after the attack versus his re preview of the explosive initial hearing. We cannot just sweep this under the rug. We need to know why it happened, who did it, and people need to be held accountable for it. And I'm committed to make sure that happens. Speaker Pelosi's select committee on January 6th is unlike any other committee in American history. In fact, it is the most political and least legitimate committee in American history. So which is it then, Kevin? 
Of course, McCarthy's revisionist history is even more glaring. Now, given the damning new information about the involvement of members of McCarthy's own Republican conference, including Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry, under scrutiny for working to replace the acting attorney general with Trump loyalist Jeffrey Clark and willing to do the president's bidding to try to overturn the election. As you will see, Representative Perry contacted the White House in the weeks after January 6th to seek a presidential pardon. Multiple other Republican congressmen also sought presidential pardons for their roles in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. But in addition to the allegations against sitting Republican members of Congress, Vice Chair Liz Cheney wasted no time calling out the Republican leader and offered a stark warning to others who continue to support the former president. We'll hear that leaders on Capitol Hill begged the president for help, including Republican leader McCarthy, who was, quote, scared, and called multiple members of President Trump's family after he could not persuade the president himself. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Joining me now, Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation, and Shermichael Singleton, political analyst and host of Screen Share on Peacock. Thank you both for being here. You know, Ellie, we know of, at least reportedly, at least two members of Congress, Republican members who sought presidential pardons per the committee. Um, this is Scott Perry, Representative Scott Perry and Representative Andy Biggs. Those are the two that we hear per the committee sought pardons. But the committee has also subpoenaed five members altogether. Kevin McCarthy himself, Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, Jim Jordan, who Kevin wanted on the committee in the first place, and Mo Brooks, who showed up um, to the Trump speech in a bulletproof vest. Seeking pardons, it doesn't mean you committed a crime, necessarily, but doesn't it mean you think you did? It means that you expect consequences. It means that you looked at your own actions, you saw what happened, you're like, hmm, somebody might have a problem with what I just tried to do, because what I just tried to do was overthrow the United States government and I only got, almost got people killed. So maybe I need some legal protection now. Look, one of the things we saw last night, Joy, is that Liz Cheney bit in a dog walk Kevin McCarthy. Like, it's going to be a bad five days for Kevin McCarthy because Kevin McCarthy was scared. And we know he was. A bunch of them were. They were frantically calling and trying to get the very one person that they all knew could stop it. Lindsey Graham caught the vapors. He was so scared. Right. But now that the immediate physical danger to their persons has passed, now they have this new now they're back to being more scared for their jobs than they are for their people. But one of the things we're going to see with these pardons is that in the interregnum between the physical fear before the fear for their job, they were fear they were feared legally and they understood that there would be legal consequences for their actions. And it's, they haven't happened yet, but they also didn't get those pardons, so they could still happen in the future. They sure didn't. Um, you know, and Michael, you've been a staffer. You've worked on Capitol Hill, and you understand how much work it is, how young everybody is. That's why you're so young, how young everyone is who's there, mm -hmm. and the danger. Can we, if we, can we just put that video back up um, of Kevin McCarthy's staff? These people were terrified. Kevin McCarthy was terrified, to Ellie's point. They were all terrified. You know, I'm quite sure even Mitch McConnell was terrified, you know, to the extent that he has feelings. Um, they were terrified. How can these staff 
go to work every day for a man who says that the investigation into what terrified them and the threat to their very lives, because there was they, somebody would have been killed had those insurrectionists caught a staffer or a member. That's just be clear. Even if it was a Republican, if it had been Mike Pence, definitely. How can they go back and work for somebody who says that this was nothing? Who dismisses it? I mean, look, not only could someone have been killed, I mean, we know that there were also explosives found, Joy, yes. that thankfully uh, those individuals weren't able to set off. I mean, it could have killed hundreds of people. Yep. Uh, you know, that, that's an interesting question. Right? I, I think about the idea of proximity to power, and it sounds like such a cliche to say this, Joy, and I'm sure some of the viewers are probably thinking, Shemichael, I hear that, but that shouldn't be enough. People should say, I don't want to work for such an individual. But it's a real thing. I've worked in politics a long time. And when you're in that bubble and when you have people calling you and when you can call the shots, wanting to remove yourself from that, even when your conscious or perhaps your subconscious is telling you, you probably morally and ethically should, can become a very, very difficult thing, particularly when there, there aren't people around you encouraging you to, to change positions, to perhaps reassess your situation and say, you know what, this is not the type of individual that I want to work for. So I don't have the expectation that, that some individuals will leave. And that's not to say that they haven't considered it. That's not to say they haven't thought about it. But it is to say that this real thing of when you're working for someone who is as powerful as a minority leader, who may indeed become the Speaker of the House in the next couple of months, giving that up is a very difficult thing for people in politics. That's that's sad state affairs. Um, you know, we're going to hear, Ellie, from, you know, the Justice Department, people who were in the Justice Department, Jeffrey Rosen et al., were prepared to write a massive letter and resign en masse if Donald Trump attempted to replace Je uh, Rosen with Jeffrey Clark and put in a basically a stooge. So there 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 is still there was still, still some conscience up there, you know, in, in that part of D.C. But I wonder a similar question. How can people go to work with somebody like Barry Loudermilk, who is accused of giving tours perhaps to people who wound up then smashing into the Capitol or, or this lady, Debbie Lesko of Arizona. Let's, let's, let's play Debbie Lesko real quick. I'm actually very concerned about this because we have who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people coming here. We have Antifa. Uh, we also have quite honestly, Trump supporters who actually believe that we are going to overturn the election and when that doesn't happen, most likely will not happen, they are going to go nuts. I wonder how members go to work with other members who knew what could happen and did nothing or who walked people through the Capitol who might have then come back to hurt them. All right. So I want to get through three things really quickly. Right. One, to your first point that you also asked, Shermichael, I think it's the henchman syndrome. Right. Why does Odd Job never say no to Goldfinger? Why does Harley Quinn stay with the joke? Right. It's the like, henchmen have a thing where they want to be near the, near the sun, near the power, and they are willing to, to eat, to, to do many things to stay there. So I think that's number one. Number two, when you act, when you talk about like what people like Lesko were, were about, people need to remember. And this is going to, I think, be surprising to a lot of people watching. But like you got to remember, Republicans want this to succeed. They want us to hold these people accountable. Mitch McConnell said while they were trying to impeach Trump, hopefully the Democrats will get it done. We'll get him. Mitch McConnell wanted Trump impeached. They want Democrats to win on this. They just don't want to, they don't want to lose so. their job. So again, 
back to the henchman syndrome. But so the thing that I so I don't care about these people. These people, these people are weak. These people are cowards, and I'm not going to waste my precious mental energy worrying about them. But the people I do worry about are the congressmen that have to work with them. I yeah. once had an interview with Cory Bush. And I was like, do you feel safe going to work, Congresswoman Bush? And before I could get the sentence out of my mouth, she was like, nah, nah. Yeah. AOC doesn't feel safe in that building. Ayanna Presley doesn't feel safe in that building. We That's know right. what these people are about. And That's we have right. our elected officials in danger as long as these people are there. And so I always come back to the need for criminal prosecutions, for wrongdoing, to make our government safe. Yeah. Benny Thompson, uh, Chairman Benny Thompson, made the point yesterday that in 1862, the Congress added that you uh, take an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, because of the Civil War. You shouldn't have to work with people who you fear might be down with the enemies domestic. You shouldn't have to go to work with them every day. That should be a nice little principle that we should have in American government. Ellie Mistal, Sir Michael Singleton, my friend, thank you very much. Still ahead. Why did police in Uvalde, Texas, wait more than an hour to confront the school gunman, even though they knew there were people inside who desperately needed medical treatment? New reporting when we come back. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today in Uvalde, Texas, family and friends said their final goodbyes to Eva Morales, one of the courageous teachers murdered trying to protect her students at Robb Elementary School. Morales was still alive after police finally engaged and killed the shooter, but died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And she was not alone. Three of the students found alive in the classroom ultimately died at the hospital. This comes as new reporting from The New York Times indicates that as officers waited in the hallway longer than an hour for equipment to protect themselves in those critical moments, they knew that there were still people alive inside that classroom. Every minute mattered. The Times reporting is based on an analysis of law enforcement documents and video, including transcripts of body camera footage. NBC News has not seen or verified that video. According to one of the transcripts of an officer's body camera footage, who investigators believe to be a school district police chief, Chief, uh, chief Pete Arredondo, he could be heard saying people are going to ask why we're taking so long. We're trying to preserve the rest of the life. Texas safety officials have claimed that Arredondo, as the incident commander on the scene, was the one who made the call to stand down, causing officers to move from an active shooter protocol to a barricaded gunman protocol as the shooter continued to fire. Speaking to the Texas Tribune in his first interview since the deadly shooting, Arredondo denied ever making that call and indicated that he did not consider himself to be the incident commander, even though he was the first officer on the scene. 
which, according to his training, would put him in that role. He did defend his delayed response in confronting the shooter by saying that with no way to get through that locked classroom door, his strategy was to save as many children as possible by evacuating students from the other classrooms first. Joining me now is Donnell Harvin, senior policy researcher for the Rand Corporation and a first responder to the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting and the 9-11 attacks. Um, it's always good to see you, Donnell. Let's go through this. The, the New York Times story was harrowing. Um, the interview was interesting. Um, but the one of the pieces that came out in the interview, in both of those two pieces, is that Arredondo gets there first— and he leaves his radio behind because he says it was too clunky to carry it into the school. Um, and therefore, he didn't have access to what was being said on 911. He also said that he didn't have a master key to the school, which you would think that since their only jurisdiction is that school district, that they would have keys to all the schools in that district. But he says he didn't have one. What do you make of, of, of that, of all of that? You know, Joy, like I said last week, this is a buffet, a hot buffet of misopportunities and mistakes. Uh, the first thing is that you are no use to anybody in a command and control situation if you don't have a radio. That's that's rule number one. The second thing is you mentioned in earlier in your lead-in that the incident command structure is something that we have that all first responders abide by. It's called the ICS system uh, or NIMS, National Incident Management System. And that dictates that the first arriving first responder is the incident commander, the person who's in charge. And as more senior people arrive, uh, that those individuals um, become, assume a charge. Well, he is the chief. And so if you don't have a radio and you're not in control, then who is? Do you, can you, can you understand in any way what he says a lot in these interviews is that he's trying to preserve as many lives as possible. And that that was his priority, um, that evacuating the kids from the other rooms was important, which is important, getting those kids out. Um, we even learned that the cousin of the shooter was across the hall in another classroom, that they're trying to evacuate other people. But he seemed to be very clear that he didn't want to put other officers' lives at risk by going through that door, even if they'd been able to open the door. Is that the way it's supposed to work? Well, not only is that a breach of protocol, but it's also a breach of training. And I've reached out to a lot of uh, active shooter trainers over the last couple of weeks that I know, and, and I look back at the training I got. The training is very, very clear. Uh, it's an active shooter. It doesn't transition into a barricade. They try to make it sound like this is some unique situation. Uh, once the shots are fired and people are down, you continuously go and try to breach into that room and take down that arm assailant. And so the fact of the matter is, and even in the Texas training, we looked this up, uh, the Texas training specifically said, if you're fear for your own life and you're worried about getting shot, then you need another job. And quite frankly, it's acknowledged that when you put that badge and you put that uniform on and you respond to an active shooter, you may give up your life so that someone else may be saved. And so that that decision, I think, is going to be well, well analyzed for many years. But uh, it certainly, I don't think, in my opinion, was the right decision. Uh, we know that in, in Sandy Hook, you know, there was also a lot of death. A, a lot of children died. And we know the shooter actually killed themselves. But the response times seemed very different. Um, that It seemed that people, the police did get there quicker to Sandy Hook. And again, also, obviously, the shooter killed himself. Is there, can you, what are the differences, in your view, between the way that those two incidences played out? 
Well, most active shooter incidents play out over less than two to three minutes. And so by the time law enforcement gets there, the, the shooting is over. Either they give up or they right. take their own life. Uh, this is unique because uh, this, this armed assailant was active, an active right. assailant for over an hour. Yeah. You don't know if he's reloading, if his gun is jammed. You don't know anything. So long as, so long as he's an active assailant, mm -hmm. you don't negotiate with someone like that. You try to take them down. So these are two different scenarios. Yeah. Once again, most active shooter scenarios unfold over a very short period of time. Yeah. This unfolded way, way too long. Yeah, it, it obviously and clearly did. Donnell Harvin, thank you. Always appreciate you. And don't go anywhere, everyone, because um, Who in the Week is still coming. It is still Friday. We're still going to do that. But first, what to make of the PGA Tour suspending golf, golf stars who signed up for a rival Saudi-backed tour that Trump himself is cashing in on? That in a second. Are you aware of um, instances where uh, Pat Cipollone threatened to resign? I, I kind of, uh, like I said, my interest at that time was on trying to get as many pardons done. Uh, and I know that, you know, he was always, him and the team were always saying, oh, we're going to resign. We're not going to be here if this happens, if that happens. So I kind of took it up to just be whining, to be honest with you. Huh. Well, that was Jared Kushner's weaselly testimony to the January 6th committee. Kushner is a man who tends to look the other way as long as he gets what he wants in the end. His four years of genuflecting to the Saudi royal prince paid off big time when the public investment fund led by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman decided to drop two billion with a B dollars on Jared's brand new private equity firm. That's sort of a trend with the Saudis in the wake of the brutal murder of American journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which the CIA is pretty sure was ordered by the crown prince. You see, they are tossing loads of money at things in the hope that it may rehabilitate their reputation. That same Saudi fund invested roughly $400 million into a golf league, into a golf league created to rival the PGA Tour. The rogue golf league called Live Golf debuted on Thursday. Former golf champion Greg Norman is the CEO and commissioner, and they've tossed bucket loads of cash at some major names to poach them away from the PGA Tour. Dustin Johnson, who has won two majors, was reportedly offered a $125 million contract to play on the Live Tour. And Phil Mickelson, who's won 45 events on the PGA Tour, including six majors, is reportedly getting a whopping $200 million. The eight events scheduled for this year will award an enormous $255 million in prize money total. And the PGA Tour, well, they ain't happy about it. All the players who defected to the Renegade Series now face banishment from future PGA Tour events. Additionally, reporters have taken the athletes to task for their moral malleability when it comes to Saudi human rights abuses. Take the Khashoggi situation. We all agreed that that was reprehensible. No one's going to argue that fact. But we're golfers, you know. Just in a generality, is there any way you wouldn't play on a moral basis? If the money was right, is there any way you wouldn't play? I don't need to answer that question. Lee, you want to answer it? Would you, I mean, would you have played in apartheid South Africa, for example? Well, you're just asking us to answer a hypothetical question now, which... Well, they're moral questions, aren't they? I'm certainly aware of what has happened with Jamal Khashoggi, and it's, I think it's terrible. I've also seen the good that the game of golf has done throughout history, and I believe that Live Golf is going to do a lot of good for the game.
Okay, well, I should also note that Phil Mickelson, who you just saw in that clip, is a self-admitted reckless gambler who, according to an unauthorized biography, allegedly accrued gambling losses upwards of $40 million between 2010 and 2014. So I guess he needs some money. But let me end where I started, with the Trump family. Two live tournament events are scheduled to take place at, wait for it, Trump-owned golf courses with me now, Bomani Jones, host of The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast and Game Theory on HBO. Well, Bomani, well, you know, all bags ain't good bags, but apparently this is such a big bag that they just don't care. Your thoughts? (laughs) Well, I mean, there are a couple of levels of this. One is that a lot of the professionals on the PGA Tour legitimately feel like the tour has too much control. Like NFTs have become a battleground for these guys where this tour will not allow them the rights to their own images, which is the kind of thing that would understandably make somebody upset. Now, does it make you decide to go do business with the Saudis? Well, that's a different question. And basically what Greg Norman said when he was asked about the human rights things with Saudi Arabia and everything else, it was basically every country has dirt. That's not an exact quote, but that's basically what he said, which is kind of like saying, well, there is no ethical capitalism, really, right? (laughs) Like his thing is the people that got the checks, we are doing this. They are supplying the money and people like Phil Mickelson want to spite the tour so badly that they're willing to go ahead and do this. Meanwhile, the PGA Tour, I think, is ultimately fighting for survival on this just because of what the quantity of money is that the Saudis are willing to throw out there. So some guys have decided it wasn't worth it for them. They're going to stay with the tour. But I'm not going to pretend like I don't understand why somebody would take $200 million to go play golf with them. But but here's the thing. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember I ain't going to play Sun City. A lot of musical artists gave up a lot of money where they could have made a lot of money touring. Touring is where most musical artists make their money. Let's just be clear. And they gave up the chance to play Sun City South Africa because of the ethics of it. In this case, Jamal Khashoggi was killed. The CIA says the Saudi crown prince did it. But he but, you know, Jared Kushner's willing to take his money. Obviously, Donald Trump, because, you know, he has no ethics. He's going to go ahead and take his money. Um, But is there no line where players say, you know what, that's too much? Oh, I think there are lines for some people like, yeah, a whole lot of people said they wouldn't go play Sun City. A few others were like, I hear there's some dates open at Sun City that you guys might need to fill in. Like, so if we take this to a different era, like after Patrice Lumumba is killed in the Congo, where people being like, hey, well, we're not going to do any business with the Belgians. Like folks are really, uh, folks are admittedly selective about when it is that they choose to draw the lines on these things. The thing is, especially for people in this country, Saudi Arabia just jumps off the page so strongly. And the Khashoggi situation is so present in our minds. Yeah. But people all the time ignore reprehensibility in the yeah. name of making money. What's interesting to me about this is Phil Mickelson is the only person so far to explicitly say, yeah, they do lots of terrible things over there, but I want to stick it to the PGA. Mm. Everybody else has gotten off on this because they're just not talking about it. And it reminds me of the national anthem situation in the NFL where Colin Kaepernick clearly articulated why he wasn't standing for the national anthem. Lots of other guys didn't stand and then never said anything yeah. for it. And they get commercials, right? Right, right, Mickelson right. was just the one person dumb enough to say the quiet part out loud. Uh, speaking of the NFL, let's talk about uh, Jack Del Rio. Uh, Jack Del Rio, um, who's the defensive coordinator for the Commanders, Washington Commanders, uh, he's getting fined 100 grand now because he called the insurrection against our capital, quote unquote, a dust up. Harry Dunn last night, we had him on MSNBC uh, as part of our coverage of the January 6th hearings. He he went at him. Um, What do you make of the fact that he's getting fined? Is that enough? Well, I am reluctant to say that he should have been fired for that just because 
I feel like I'm saying you should fire him because I didn't like what he said. And that makes me uncomfortable because when it goes in the other direction, I would vehemently oppose it. What I think is kind of interesting about this, though, is I don't think Del Rio realizes what a loser of a position this is, especially in D.C. In D.C. So you can talk about this in lots of other places and it's just kind of a hypothetical thing. But when you talk about it in a city where people know people who were there that day, they know That's people right. that were part of that police force. They don't really have a sense of humor about what it is that he's talking about. That's and he right. decided to come out and say, right. That's where I think that he ultimately got it wrong is I think a lot of the people who believe in the idea that the election was stolen, you got to look around and realize people who are running for election on that platform, they're not winning. Like this isn't something where you got a real army that's behind you. You might have an army big enough to storm the Capitol, but you yeah. don't have an army big enough to protect you on this one. Overall, some of the most inflammatory people we know of when this happened in January of 2021, they stood down. They were like, right. hey, 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 this is a little right. farther than we much. could go. Jack Del Rio yep. was the last person to get the memo. Yeah, absolutely. And when people that defended the Capitol are saying you're wrong, you're in the wrong, you're on the wrong end uh, of that argument. Uh, Bomani's going to stick with us, though, because we're going to have Bomani play Who Won the Week. And that's right after this break. Well, TGIF, everybody, we made it. We made it. That can only mean one thing. It's time to play. With me, the great Bamani Jones, I see an Emmy behind you. Maybe you won the week. But give us somebody besides yourself who won the week. <laughs> All right, let's look at uh, Jeff Molina, UFC fighter, who he wore the Pride uh, shorts. That The UFC's Pride shorts, by the way, they are in on Pride Month. And he got up and he had a lot to say about what fans were saying to him in response to this and just really just kind of floored and surprised by how offended people were by it. And the reason I say he won the week is these sorts of messages land completely differently when it's somebody that could beat you up. Now, I know some people are probably thinking he's just a flyweight, but that's like saying a gun is just a 22. <laughs> like you can you, you hear somebody say something like that. It's one thing that you could try to push them off as just being like uh, overwoke or anything else. It's another thing when it's a real live tough guy. It may not convert that many grownups, but it might give some kids something to think about. And those are the people you got the best chance of winning the intellectual fight. Amen. With. I love that. I love that. Well, my who won the week this week is uh, the, the police officers, the Capitol police officers and Metro police officers who testified, told their truth, told their story, stood up for us on January 6th and are continuing to stand up for the truth and for our democracy. Officer Harry Dunn, Officer Daniel Hodges, former Officer Michael Fanone, Sergeant Aquilino, Aquilino Gonell, Officer Caroline Edwards, who really, really moved us all last night. These guys are heroes. And in an era where we're seeing police really not always stand up and do the right thing, especially in places like Uvalde, they did the right thing. They won the week. Bamani Jones, thank you, my friend. And that is it. Tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.